This whole idea that the whole Muslim world is responsible for this and they're attacking us because we're free and prosperous, that is just not true. Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda have been explicit. They have been explicit and they wrote and said that we attacked we attacked America because you had bases on our Holy Land in Saudi Arabia. You do not give Palestinians a fair treatment, and you have been bombing. I didn't say that. I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand what the motive was behind the bombing. At the same time, we had been bombing and killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqis for 10 years. Would you be annoyed? If you're not annoyed, you, then there's some problem. Hello everyone, that was Ron Paul speaking at the Republican presidential nomination debates in 2012. He's talking about Al-Qaeda's motivations for attacking the United States and lists amongst them the first Gulf War and the ensuing sanctions of Iraq, which it is claimed cost hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives. Now, is that true and was it a motivating factor? That's what I'll be asking Adam Fitzgerald in this latest installment of our interview series. We'll also be discussing the United States and Great Britain's long-standing support for Saddam Hussein, and why that suddenly went for an about-face in 1990. And finally, in this interview I've done something a bit different. I've incorporated three clips from John Pilger's documentary, Paying the Price, Killing the Children of Iraq. So we'll start off with a clip from the documentary, where John Pilger and author Saeed Abarush are talking about the West relationship with Saddam, and then we'll move into some comments from Adam. Britain and America say that sanctions are aimed at the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, not at the people of Iraq. But where did Saddam Hussein come from? How did he get his weapons of mass destruction? And who gave him such power? The answers can be traced back to the discovery of the greatest of all imperial prizes, oil. In 1921, the British created yet another desert monarchy, installing a compliant King Faisal in Baghdad. Iraq was granted a nominal independence, with real power remaining in London, so that oil and the profits of oil continued to flow to the West. In 1958, a nationalist government swept to power in Iraq, and Washington immediately stepped in. Within five years, the Iraqi government was overthrown with help from the Central Intelligence Agency. It was, said the CIA, a great victory. The new regime was dominated by the Ba'ath Party, which by 1979 produced a leader the West could do business with, Saddam Hussein. He was a son of a bitch, said a CIA official but he was our son of a bitch. Saddam has a great deal to thank the CIA for, for bringing the Ba'ath to power, for keeping the Ba'ath in power, for helping him personally, for providing him with financial aid during the war with Iran, for protecting him against internal coup d'etats. It's, it's a continuing relationship from the very early 1960s until now, and it's a love-hate relationship. In Washington, the relationship with Saddam Hussein was often cynically called the love affair. In the words of a U.S. Senate investigation, Presidents Reagan and Bush secretly and illegally courted Saddam Hussein with a reckless abandon. In Britain, the same love affair blossomed between the Thatcher government and Saddam Hussein. cabinet ministers lined up to pay their respects and offer him trade deals and loans, indeed almost everything he wanted. They sold him helicopters, they sold him ammunitions, uh, they sold him electronics, they sold him uh, anti-nuclear, biological and chemical warfare suits and boots, uh, they sold him very important equipment. Okay, now here's Adam with some more detail on the history of Iraq as it comes out of the Ottoman Empire. Just a, sh a short, uh, brief history that uh, with Iraq, the, uh, I actually was empowered by the Ottoman Empire. 
between the years of 1533 to 1918. Um, and in 1917, 1917 the uh, British military had defeated the embattled Ottoman um, during the struggle of the Mesopotamian campaign. Um, Iraq itself had has always been um, a key strategic military point between the British and the Arab Turks of the century. Um, immediately, the uh, Ottoman Empire was divided up between the British mandate and Mesopotamia. The Sunni uprising was suppressed by the Shias, the Yazidis, and while Iraq was undergoing a new transformation of sorts um, in 1945, which finally joined um, the United Nations in becoming a founding of uh, uh, a republic, it seems. In 1958, um, Iraq, under the influence of uh, Abu Karim Qasim, uh, before colonial, proclaimed Iraq a republic finally. So they were on their way to becoming a, um, a nationalist country, which was long uh, under their own control. But in 1963, Qasim's demise came at the hands of um, rising nationalist ideology, which was the Baptists who returned uh, assassinated the scene. Um, and then Abdul Salim Arif would become the Iraq's first president. Um, the Arif's tenure was uh, actually short-lived. He was killed in a helicopter accident. And then his underling, Ahmad Hassan Abakar, would become Iraq's new president. In 1967, after the Six Day War, the Baptist Party felt strong enough to retake power of the country in 1968 after a long um, uh, suppression of the group. And during the 1970s, the Baptists participated in numerous wars with the Kurds. By 1979, Al Baqarah was ousted along with the Socialist cabinet by none other than uh, Saddam Hussein, who ordered the, the complete liquidation of all he considered traitors to the country. Uh, many, many of them were high-ranking members of the Baptist Party who were leaning toward the socialist ideology. Um, but Hussein's regiment would eventually force out all the remaining loyalists to al-Bakr. By 1980, uh, during the Iraq-Iranian War, had commenced immediately under Hassan uh, Saddam Hussein's leadership. Iraq officially invaded Iran on uh, September 22nd, and the United States showed favor, immediate favor for the Baptist regime led by Hussein because they considered Iran as a much more uh, volatile enemy than Iraq. And of course, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel would uh, agree that Iran, because of, of religious and geopolitical differences, uh, billions of dollars of economic, uh, along with high-tech military aid, would be uh, given assistance toward by the U.S. and Great Britain as we saw Iraq as a formidable strategic ally. And um, they were in opposed against Rouhollah Khomeini, who was the first main leader of Iran. And when I, I, the Iran-Iraq war lasted eight years, it took an, an enormous toll economically as well as physically during the nation. So half a million people killed in this war, uh, many of them civilians. And immediately this uh, became a uh, long uh, argument toward people who were liberal meaning toward the United States and in Great Britain, seeing that the war, that their um, participation in the war as more of a detriment to the region, especially with the United States and Great Britain funding this uh, overtly nationalist regime of Saddam Hussein. And one, you know, take a long look, especially now, uh, after many years later, seeing that it was the wrong move because um, Iraq then in turn Use that military and financial aid to liquidate the Kurds, and then, um, of course, make a forceful move to Kuwait, and, and then, of course, we saw what happened with that. The Gulf War that decimated uh, the country itself, but they didn't kill Saddam Hussein and let him live. And, of course, with the second Bush uh, presidency, H.W. Bush, um, he saw that, he saw to it that he wanted to capture or kill Saddam Hussein. Yeah, okay. I mean, in, in terms of, I thought that the um, uh, financial backing of Saddam Hussein was a, I thought it was a mistake. So there was this financial backing of the Baptists and then Saddam Hussein 
throughout the 70s, the Ba'athists, and then when Saddam came to power and in the Iran-Iraq war, even to the point of, I was reminded of, um, when preparing this, of the USS Stark incident in, in 1987, where the Iraqi Air Force actually hit a, a US warship, the USS Stark, uh, with missiles, killed 37 American sailors. And there was no great consequence to that. They, the, the, you know, you can imagine it's just striking the difference between then and 20 years later, less than 20 years later, when George W. Bush was trying to pin anything and everything under the sun on Saddam Hussein. Just 15 years earlier than that, they, the Iraqis could get away with seemingly accidentally, probably accidentally, we don't audibly know, but it, I've no great reason to suspect it was more than that, actually hitting a, a, a US warship. Um, and human rights violations in Saddam's regime all the way up until the first Gulf War were never a consideration for Western powers. Oh, would you like for me to elaborate yeah, on it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, uh, on, uh, well, wasn't, uh, well, do you agree that the, the attack on the U.S. U.S. stock was much uh, similar aspects to the, uh, the attack on the U.S.'s liberty? Um, the U.S.'s liberty, it, it was uh, during the Sixty War, the Israeli Arab Sixty War, where the Israeli military fired upon uh, the U.S.'s liberty and thought it was um, uh, a ship, uh, an attack ship. And they, they bombed it. And, and when that happened, um, the, there was no ramifications toward Israel itself. With the U.S.'s start, uh, and this is a little bit more obscure story, it wasn't really given much um, in terms of media play. But the, for those who don't know, U.S. Astarte was a, um, a warship which was outfitted uh, for multiple attacks deployments. It was deployed um, to the Middle East Force in 1984 and 1987. It was, it was an activity. In, in May 17, 1997, during the Iraq-Iran War, um, two uh, Iraqi anti-missiles shot from them. Um, an Iraqi dissolved barrage aircraft. Uh, impacted the ship. Uh, ship's radar couldn't detect the missiles. Uh, only the ship lookout uh, was on top. Saw them coming. It was much too late. 37 sailors, like I said, was killed. 21 were injured. Um, the U.S. assault was ordered not to shoot in defense. Meanwhile, the Reagan administration uh, in turn blamed the Iran Iranian government uh, for its belligerence in the conflict. Meanwhile, uh, the, the conflict started by Iraqi Russia, but it was blamed on Iran. Later U.S. officials, um, many years down the road, did not even have a solid answer as to who ordered the attack or why. And meanwhile, they learned that the pilot of the aircraft was still rumored to be seen alive and living in um, Basra, Iraq. But it just goes to show you that they're willing to overlook even um, adversaries in the region when, it was, when it's an attack on their own, on their own ships. It, it gives you pause, it makes you wonder. Um, it is about these uh, um, these elements, these uh, countries, the regime, in the uh, the region itself, where they can attack USS entities and not face any type of um, ramifications for them. And that's why when you bring up the USS Stark, it's, it bears much in similarity to the uh, USS Liberty. Yeah, I looked at that actually. Right. In in researching for this, I actually looked at that because the comparison is so obvious to the Liberty, the American ship that was attacked by the Israeli Air Force in 1967, and the conspiracy theory around that, that this was not an accident on behalf of the, uh, the Israeli Air Force, but rather it was trying to draw the US into the war against Egypt on Israel's side, and that Lyndon Johnson uh, was a knowing actor in this. Okay, so, and I think that there was a, we'll come on, we'll talk about that when we get to the talking about Zionism. That would be probably a big incident we'll talk about. But I think it's a very credible um, idea, a very credible theory. And I was interested, has anyone proposed anything similar to the Stark? Like, was this a false flag to get the United States uh, into the war on the side of Iraq against Iran? And I didn't find anything like that. I googled things like USS Stark conspiracy or USS Stark USS Liberty. Um, and I didn't find anything overtly like that. I mean, you, you can't obviously know people's intentions. I did find claims that the Iraqis had done it deliberately because they were annoyed about the US selling arms to Iran, uh, double 
double-sided funding of the war, double-sided supplying during the war. Uh, but I, I didn't find anything more solid or compelling than that. But it is, it is just striking how the relationship of Iraq was, was so close that the, the U.S. would overlook something like that. Yeah, it, it, it does make you wonder um, that they're willing to, to uh, abscond certain entities where they have a relationship with in hopes of, of, uh, of having that same entity to attack them, uh, attack certain another entity or country government. And for the, the overall good of either the United States or Israel or Saudi Arabia, which I, I usually take the link all three because all three are, are allies against everyone else within the Middle East and Southeast Asia. But it, it also brings up a moral confidence too that you know these people are willing to overlook you know mass grievances, crimes, human crimes against uh, you know usually it's against the United States and no one else. And when um, you're dealing with this type of uh, apathy toward the human condition, especially the United States, um, it makes you wonder what kind of um, apathy they would show to people who aren't Americans. And I mean, you, know, yeah. you can look around the world at how many millions of dead. Okay. It's an interesting so What caused this great pivot in 1990 from Saddam being the ally to Saddam being the reincarnation of Hitler? Okay, because that's my, my first memory of any sort of war. Um, I'm not old enough to remember the Falklands War in Britain. Um, so my first memory was really the Iraq War. And it was, that's the first time I was conscious of this man called Saddam Hussein, who was an evil man and he'd invaded this other peace-loving country, Kuwait, and he was a bad guy and the British, the Americans, they were gonna go in and stop him. And it, all, it was all presented as this very virtuous action. Of course, I wasn't aware of any historical context. I don't think anyone was presented in, in the media here but it so it must have come as quite a shock to Saddam and there's all sorts of talk talk of the US somewhat green lighting the war uh, through their ambassador April Galepsi that's come up in recent years um, so maybe you could talk through both Saddam's motivation for invading Kuwait what he was intending to do and the surprising given the historical context the US is surprising response to that, both in seeming to encourage him and then turning on him? Well, when, when speaking about Saddam Hussein and uh, the invasion of Kuwait itself, um, in, in, in its regard, his hate, his virtual hatred for the, the Kurds and the Alawites in the region, um, uh, the other elements that he saw that weren't in line with the Athens itself, um, we also see like this uh, almost this egregious, this arrogance reported by uh, Saddam Hussein's Baptist regime itself. And the intelligence service of the U.S. would not report any violations of the Geneva Convention of what he was in line for. But remember, too, when the United States uh, was funding Saddam Hussein, they were also looking away at the crimes of what Saddam Hussein was doing to the Kurds. And, when they were giving him chemical weapons such as mustard gas, um, 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 other uh, chemical agents as well, uh, they were also looking away when he was using that the Kurds on the border of, of Iran itself. And this was in direct, of course, this was against the direct um, violation of the Geneva Convention. And uh, I would I would submit to you that this was. Um, you could say this is where the United States was uh, in line committing uh, these, these crimes themselves because they're the ones who gave Saddam Hussein the chemical weapons to use against the Iranian regime. And meanwhile, he's using them not against just the Iranian civilians uh, bordering on Iran, but using it also in towns such as Manjun Island, which is uh, in Iraq, and Al-Basra, which is in Kuwait, um, and the western provinces of Azerbaijan. And meanwhile, he's using all these chemical weapons the United States were giving him. Now, we also see, for the first time, the presence of, like you said, April Gillespie, who was, by the way, the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, who supported the Baptist um, regime under Hussein against Iran. In 1990, 
the Iran-Iraq war was just prior to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And meanwhile, Gillespie would have her first formal meeting with um, uh, Saddam Hussein and, and Tariq uh, Aziz, who was deputy prime minister. And I'll quote you uh, the telegram to the State Department, which talked to Hussein was as follows. We have no opinion on your Arab conflict, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Secretary Baker had directed me to emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in the 1960s that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. Now, here's, now years later, when WikiLeaks spoke the story by releasing documents of the meeting, Gillespie uh, was immediately accused of giving approval for the Kuwait invasion. Now, this is key, without US interference, by the way. So, in other words, they're saying we have no qualm you invading Kuwait. So what is that telling you? Yes, we're wanting you to, not so much in direct language, by the way, say, but we're giving them the okay, the blue, the green light of invading Kuwait in hopes of having you try to invade Saudi Arabia so we can interfere and you know, finally deal with you. Now, the last we would testify before the Senate, um, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in April 91, the claims she, she repeatedly warned Iraqi President Hussein not to use force to settle the dispute with Kuwait. But meanwhile, uh, this would be in direct contradiction to the WikiLeaks uh, article or documents that came out many years later. Um, so she lied under oath. But during uh, the war with the United States, people have them, their own hidden affair of covenant due time. But under um, the Reagan administration, Senior administration officials will be secretly shipping military armies to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in return for the release of the U.S. hostages. And the shipment of the arms would violate uh, Iran's arms embargo, which was, uh, of course, under the United States uh, declaration, sanctioned under the Carter administration, um, under the Carter administration in um, 1979, when the Iranian Revolution, uh, revolution began. This was called the Iran Contra Affair. Now, the plan was for Israel to ship weapons to Iran, for the United States to resupply Israel, and for Israel to pay the United States. The Iranian receipt promised to do everything in their power to release the hostages during the, during the Iranian Revolution. Now, this came into play, however, Lieutenant Colonel Alvanor, who was heading the operation, complicated the issue by using a portion of those proceeds to fund the Contras, which was anti-Sandinista rebel fighters uh, in the struggle against the socialists in Nicaragua. Years now, the Reagan administration will come under a complete investigation. We saw numerous cabinets such as Casper uh, Weinberger, Elliot Abram, Richard Secord, John Poindexter, and uh, Alan Fires of the CIA. Most of them would be pardoned later on when they were convicted. Um, some by the George Bush uh, administration. Hussein, Saddam Hussein, however, would not relinquish his virtue and hasty with the current. Eastern border in 1990, Iraq and whom they contend were committing a grave violation of the nation's laws by stealing petroleum, by slant drilling in the region. And this, was, this came out to be much false. Um, in just two days, the Kuwait Armed Forces retreat, would retreat to uh, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. King Fahd, who was the, the supreme leader of Saudi Arabia, feared he would be next and asked the United States State Department to send a delegation to open up talks about setting up naval stations in the uh, land. Many within the religious sector, this would, now this is huge, because many within the religious sector of Saudi Arabia resoundingly repelled the very notion of having um, a secular armed forces in the United States, especially someone as westernized as the United States who was aligned with Israel. Now, this would be big because Osama bin Laden fresh off the victory of the Soviets in 1979 Afghan war, but went to the monarchy, the Sudari 7, in August 1990, and met with King Fahd and uh, the Saudi defense minister, Sultan bin Aziz al-Sud, declared that the, the Mujahideen fires could repel the Iraqi military in the same fashion that repelled the Soviet invaders just 10 years uh, prior. But King Fahd rejected the proposal and Bin Laden left in anger and that, uh, that the disloyal monarchy allowing the West to encamp um, okay. so, so just let me clarify that on Saddam's 
motivations for the invaders. I've heard a couple of things, right? I've heard the slant drilling theory that Kuwait was drilling into Iraqi oil fields. And I've also heard that's ridiculous because Kuwait basically floats on oil. So the idea they would need to stick their hand into Iraq's pocket is is not feasible. And you're saying it's not the case. This was Iraqi propaganda or something. There was right. no slant drilling going on. He didn't have the means to do any type of rigorous slant drilling in the region. And I think this was directly, um, I think that Saddam Hussein actually was bamboozled, uh, according to uh, numerous agents within the State Department, like Agent Galaxy uh, uh, itself. Now, of course, um, I think the problem lies with Saddam Hussein's uh, arrogance as well. Um, he thinks that by going with the Meanwhile, of course, the Iraq and Iran war was a stalemate. Um, but Iraq actually saw themselves as the winner, uh, taking on the uh, Shia regime uh, of uh, Iran itself, because he went to war right away with them. I mean, he just liquidated the socialists within the Iraqi uh, country itself. And once he liquidated the socialists itself, he went right against the, uh, the, Shia, the Shias um, in Iran. I, I thought that that was a rushed move on Saddam Hussein's part. Um, but he used the justification for the invasion of Kuwait uh, uh, using slant drilling in the region and in direct competition with uh, the oil, oil uh, uh, expenditures of, of Iraq. And they saw this as a direct threat, as a competition within the region. If they could take over Kuwait, and now they can directly uh, be a, a competitor toward the, of course, the oil of Saudi Arabia itself. And that's what uh, a major part of the war was about, uh, what the invasion was about. But I think that, um, that he was tricked into saying that the United States would not interfere if they, inter if they um, um, invaded Kuwait. Meanwhile, uh, you know, Golaski lied and said that, you know, they tried to, in every aspect, they tried to. Um, uh, uh, and say to Saddam Hussein, don't do it. Uh, you know, we want you. But um, meanwhile, that wasn't the case. I think that was the reason why it was specific. They wanted him to expand his military into Kuwait. And then thus, they could use the, the aspect that they can help Saudi Arabia build the bases there and repel Saddam Hussein. Because, okay, so, you know, so I've heard different ideas on this too. I've, one I've heard is that they, they green-lighted him, but they didn't expect him to take the whole country. They just expected him to destroy the Kuwaiti military and that's good for military contracts and also fine but when he went to take the whole country then Britain and the United States panicked because they didn't want the, the crazy dictator that was Saddam Hussein controlling that much oil and um, so that's one thing I've heard the other one is that, that they know they so that that would suggest that they didn't actually plan on having a Gulf War um, the other accounts I've heard are that they um, and this is from John Perkins in his book, um, The Economic Hitman, a really famous book that came out a few years ago now, quite a few years ago. Um, he claimed that Saddam Hussein wasn't playing ball and giving enough Western corporations contracts to take a rack on the path of development that the US government wanted it to go on, similar to Saudi Arabia, and they needed to get rid of him. They couldn't assassinate him, so they tricked him into a war. Um, well, I say get rid of him, but then they decided not to, that it would be a disciplining action. They were just going to, they were going to teach him a lesson and demolish some of Iraq. And in a sense, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's the one that makes the most sense of the insanity to me in some ways. Uh, so, and you're suggesting that there was actually a strategic goal to have bases in Saudi Arabia. Right, because they were, they were well, there have been long-time allies in Saudi Arabia first of all, and Saudi Arabia considered um, countries like Iraq, uh, Iran to be regional enemies themselves uh, on a, on a multi-fold uh, multi problem, a religious one, uh, Shia, the Shiites and, and the Sunni um, religious sectarian divide, as well as a, a geopolitical divide regarding um, the, uh, the structure, the, the governmental structure of the nationalist of like the Baathist regime of Saddam Hussein, and of course, uh, their their ally, their strongest ally, their strongest uh, enemy in Saudi Arabia was Iran in the region. So that's mainly because of the Sunni-Shia divide itself. And I think I think 
particularly with Saudi Arabia, they played along in this part because they wanted bases in the United States uh, to help them with their own military because their military isn't very um, uh, strength, uh, very uh, strong in the region itself. That's what they feared. And that goes all the way back to World War II because they feared the Italians would come in and they would take over Saudi Arabia and the oil fields themselves. That's when they made the pact with um, Roosevelt um, uh, to, to, uh, to have bases built there and have their oil companies from Texas and California, UNESCO, and come in and um, you know share within the profits itself. But it was a, these people are thinking decades and decades in the future, of course, too, because they wanted they want the United States because the United States military is the only military that could come in and wipe out the countries itself, along with Great Britain. I'm talking about the coalition itself. Now, Saudi Arabia uh, itself is inviting the United States to come into their own country in direct violation of like the religious edicts, the imams, like Ibn, Ibn Baz, um, you know, the, of course you have guerrilla fighters like uh, bin Laden who are protesting against. And, uh, you know, I, in the long run also, this branch out to be a problem for the United States and, and Great Britain in the long run with, you know, terrorism that will come in much later. But yes, I think that, that the um, Saddam Hussein himself was tricked thinking that the United States wouldn't pose a threat mm -hmm. in, in invading on behalf of, of Kuwait or Saudi Arabia because they, they didn't, well, Kuwait wasn't a strong ally in the United States, but on, on the other hand, when they did it, um, they knew that, so they, they knew the threat because you, much later, um, you know, they, there would be fake Russian satellite photos used to, to because uh, they said they, they had uh, this huge uh, Iraqi military was coming on the invasion of Saudi Arabia. And this turned out to be much false. Um, uh, that, that was another point I wanted to ask you about because I'd heard okay, that. Yeah, no, go ahead. That, yeah. What did I hear? I heard the. I was trying to search this actually and I couldn't find it again prior to the interview, so I'm glad you brought it up that the Americans showed the Saudi satellite photos of a huge Iraqi force heading towards their border, um, but later the Russians released satellite photos that demonstrated that to be false. Is that the correct narrative? Yeah, now, no, there's, listen, there's much to take the claim of these fake photos of the Iraqi military along the southern border, it's true. But in 19, uh, January of 91, uh, Gene Heller, who was a, um, um, a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times of Florida, uh, remarked, she remarked that the satellite photos taken the same day uh, when President Bush addressed Congress in August 19, had failed to back up the claim of an imminent Iraqi invasion. Now, two American satellite imaging experts who examined the photos uh, couldn't find any evidence of a massive Iraqi presence, a presence in Kuwait of September 1990. Heller reported this and stated that the, so the Soviet satellite photos were taking five weeks, the photos itself were taken five weeks after August 2nd, 1990, which implicates that the Bush administration exaggerated the scope of the Iraqi military threat. Um, Heller would, now Heller, of course, would request to the Defense Department about the, the final analyzed photo inspection and asked for the evidence of the Iraqi military buildup. Her request was denied. Now, I'm going to quote you, Bob Paul, who is a spokesman for the State Department. Oh, we have given conservative estimates of the Iraqi numbers based on various intelligence resources, and those are the numbers we stand by. In other words, trust us. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, in essence, there was absolutely no photographic evidence to show that the Iraqis were forming a Soviet uh, a military invasion of the Saudi Kingdom. So yes, the uh, the, the claims of the the buildup of the Iraqi military towards the Saudi it was false. So what, but what does that tell you? I mean, that tells you that that the the trickery that was led for uh, to the invasion of, of Iraq in the Gulf War was based on lies itself. Okay. Well, whilst we're on the the subject of war propaganda, to take. Well, in that case, Saudi Arabia into the, the Gulf War, there was also propaganda to take the U.S. population in, right? Like you, you had this young lady, teenage girl, who was brought before Congress, I think, and testified about Iraqi soldiers ripping babies from incubators as they marched through Kuwait. And it came out that she was, um, she was the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter, which certainly wasn't disclosed at the time and had been coached by a PR firm to deliver this speech. And it was something that George Bush 
with great passion in his voice quoted about their tearing babies out of incubators. I can, yeah, I can maybe play the clip in there. I know you've, you've heard it. So, um, yeah, just maybe speak to that. And any other, it was actually very reminiscent, I think, of the, um, the First World War, of the stories of German soldiers bayoneting babies going through when they marched through Belgium. So we have this reoccurrence of really the same propaganda narratives. Can you, can you talk about that incident? Sure. This, is, this was the, the incident that gave way to the public's uh, admission that, yes, we should invade and take over the Saddam Hussein machine. Now, the nurse Naria testimony um, was given before uh, the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. Uh, it was given on uh, uh, October 10th, 1990. Um, nurse Naria supposedly... Her, her name was Naria Al-Saba, and she was um, the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter. Um, but yet she, she stated that um, while she was working as a nurse, she saw that the Iraqi Baptists came into the hospitals. They started throwing babies on the floor. They were dying on the whole floor. Uh, they were shooting them. And they were killing uh, children while they were at. And she gave this long presentation. And meanwhile, she's crying before the, the, the human rights caucus itself. And, every, and they're taking in every word. And meanwhile, you know, you have delegates within Kuwait in, in the, uh, the, uh, the uh, behind or in the podium itself. Um, the American uh, public relations campaign, I believe was called the Noten and Hill, the Hill and Noten um, public relations firm. Uh, but they were a public relations firm for the Kuwaiti government. And they were, they were coaching her for like two, two or three weeks how to act for the, the delegation, how to present. Meanwhile, she's given a speech um, in a closed hotel room. And um, when the time came, she gave this brief presentation. Immediately after, the, the American public bought into it because it was broadcast on C-SPAN. Um, and the American public was gulped. But, but you bring up a, a, a very pertinent point is that you just can't go to war without the public's approval. And when we talk about 9-11, We'll talk about the, the need to have the public behind you in order to invade a country because you just can't invade a country without the American approval. It's, it's tantamount to um, the treason on the government's part, even though it is treason because um, everything she said was a lie. Uh, the government, uh, the Baptists never went into these hospitals and killed children. It was all a lie. Um, she never was a nurse. She's the, the ambassador to the Kuwait ambassador. I forgot, I forgot the, the, the name of the individual, but Yes, it was all based on lies. All basically, all basically, all wars are based on lies anyway. But yeah, here's a great example of the invasion of Iraq based on the lie because the Iraq invasion was based upon the testimony of this girl, Naria Al Saba. Okay, okay. So what I'll do is, in a moment, I'll loop back and ask you about the consequences of the war itself the actual impact that had on iraq because that will lead into talking about the after effects and the sanctions and the continued bombing through the 1990s but we'll just hop over the war for a moment and talk about um, the anything you feel is relevant from it conflict-wise but then the ending of it and this reversal again of the u.s position back to saddam being not exactly an ally but someone they wanted to keep in power and I'll play the second clip from John Pilger's documentary uh, at this point, and then I'll have you comment on that. By March the 5th, 1991, Saddam Hussein's rule had collapsed across southern Iraq, and the popular uprising had spread here to Iraq's second city, Basra. A new start for the people of Iraq seemed close at hand. Then Saddam's old allies in Washington intervened in the nick of time. The opposition within the country, of course, listened to the West and rose against Saddam Hussein, only to be confronted by the United States in particular, helping Saddam Hussein against them. They actually stopped rebels who rose against him from reaching arms depots. They denied them shelter. They flew over his helicopters as his helicopters attacked them. They gave his Republican Guard safe passage through their lines to attack the rebels. They did everything except join the fight on his side. Okay, so we've just heard from Saeed Abarush 
again there in the John Pilger documentary about this reversal of position and the US wanting, initially encouraging an uprising against Saddam Hussein from the Shia population, from the Kurdish population, and then totally dropping that and seemingly choosing to feel that he was their best option. So what thoughts do you have on that, Adam, on, on the US seeming to want to keep Saddam in power after the first Gulf War? Right, I think the, the answer is, is, is obvious in the regime because they still saw the, the Ba'athist regime as a formidable ally to use against the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard. Because in, in, in essence, Iran is the greater enemy in the region toward the United States coalition and toward Israel and toward Saudi Arabia. And they too have their own uh, uh, goals and agendas toward the region itself. They saw Iran as the greater threat. And even though that they didn't want to get their, their hands dirty, they would rather use uh, whatever's left of the Baptist regime to still try to instigate um, uh, operations against, or guerrilla operations against the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and to still keep them as an enemy in the region against Iran itself. Now, of course, there are competing factions within the U.S. government that also wanted uh, Saddam Hussein out of power as well. They saw him as um, somebody who was out of his usefulness, someone who is um, more um, troubled than what they're worth, so to speak. Um, but there are, I guess, the neocon factions um, within the first Bush administration saw him as a useful ally in, in hopes of repelling um, uh, or trying to liquidate uh, the Iranian uh, regime to an extent. But I, I think what they saw in the long run was that uh, Iraq wasn't going to be this formidable enemy that can overthrow um, Iranians, uh, Ali, uh, the Supreme Leader. Ali Khamenei and President uh, Akbar Hashemi uh, Raskajani at the time, 1991, we're talking about. Um, but they needed help. But they, instead of, because the United States just couldn't just go in and commit a war with Iran right away without having, because first of all, it's, it's a military uh, mistake. And secondly, it, it's something that the public would definitely not get behind. They could definitely get behind the invasion of Iraq because, as we were just talking about, the lies of of uh, Nurse Nabiya and of course the lies that they're using chemical against, against the, uh, against the uh, uh, Kuwaiti, uh, Kuwaiti civilian. And of course the invasion of Saudi Arabia all based on lies anyway. But yes, um, they, they saw that they could, they could use Iraq still as a useful tool, but uh, as years come by, they, they knew that um, Iraq would not be um, a, f a formidable uh, enemy toward Iran. And that's why they finally got rid of Okay, okay. Let's move on to looking at the consequences of the war and its aftermath for the people of Iraq then. So it's striking for me to do this interview immediately after we talked about Yugoslavia, the bombing of Serbia, because there seem to be just parallels there in terms of you have a humanitarian crisis in the region but really false humanitarian reasons are given to enact the bombing campaigns. And then civilian infrastructure is hit. Things like power plants and hospitals are destroyed in the bombing. And this has immense consequences for the civilian population because without power plants, you can't sanitize water. So it's effectively a form of chemical warfare. Um, depleted uranium gets dropped, which is apparently quite safe if it's in a, a form where it's held together in a bullet, but when the bullet breaks up and fragments and turns into dust, it poisons the land, both in Serbia and Kosovo and in Iraq. So, yeah, it's almost like a template, right? And I'd hear different estimates for the just how many tens or even hundreds of thousands of casualties there were in Iraq as a result of the bombing directly but far greater than that, the destruction of infrastructure. So can you speak to that maybe? And then in a moment, I'll play a further clip and we'll talk about the sanctions, but specifically on, on the consequences of, of the war. Yeah, 
specifically with the civilian infrastructure of Iraq, because that's what was directly uh, influenced from the sanctions and from the bombing campaigns by the rebels, by the American coalition military itself. When we're bombing these cities of Basra uh, and other uh, southern areas of Iraq, what the American people are not experiencing is that most of these bombing campaigns directly uh, are influencing the civilian structure of Iraq, not um, the, the Baptist regime itself. I mean, many, I mean, I think uh, with the sanctions themselves, it was like 600,000 children were, were killed. Um, when there's a famous clip with um, Madeleine Albright, uh, where um, the interviewer is asking Albright if the, um, the sanctions were worth it, and she tells him the number in which there were many 600,000 children. I think in the interview it was 500,000, but uh, half a million children were killed. She says, was, was, the, was it worth it? Was it worth it for the United States and the United Nations to impose these embargoes on Iraq? And, and Albright, and to many people, shock, but I guess to many people, not, not surprised, said, yes, I think the, the sanctions were worth it. And that just goes to show you that the level of, of apathy that certain people um, in these higher positions of the United States or the Polish staff in regards to the civilian structure, not to the structure that is the guilty party, so to speak, uh, the Baptists themselves, the Baptist regime, but to the civilian structure itself. I mean, these are people who are caught right in the middle of the, the tortures of the, the nefarious uh, individuals of, of, under Saddam Hussein, of course, to the, the external ab apparatuses of the United States, uh, Great Britain, France, and Germany, who are uh, committing uh, to the destruction of the Baptist regime. Meanwhile, they're destroying the infrastructures of hospitals and schools, universities, uh, uh, power plants, uh, and what have you. And that is not just affecting the Baptists themselves, because they're living you know, in these faraway places that uh, they're living pretty well within their means. Um, meanwhile, it's the civilian infrastructure we're destroyed. And this has a much greater um, impl implication down the road because what does this create? This creates a virtual hatred for the United States and the coalition itself. I'll pause and, you there, Adam. I'll pause you there. I'll, pl I'll play the last clip we have, okay? okay. Which is a clip of a man called Con Ross. Um, well, he's second on it, actually. First of all, it's from, it's from the John Pilger documentary again. And it's Dennis Halliday, the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations at the time, talking about the effect of the sanctions. And then it moves on to John Pilger interviewing Carl Ross, who worked at the British Foreign Office and had a role in implementing the sanctions. The attack on Iraq did not begin with shock and awe. During the first Gulf War in 1991, Britain and America deliberately bombed Iraq's modern infrastructure. And when the war was over, the bombing continued. This was seldom reported. During this period of the 1990s, the UN imposed an economic blockade led by Britain and America. Essentials like clean water and vital drugs were denied. In 1998, the United Nations Children's Fund reported the deaths of half a million children under the age of five, a direct result of the sanctions imposed by the blockade. This is Dennis Halliday, former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, who resigned after refusing to administer the sanctions. In 1999, I traveled with him to Iraq. The very provisions of the Charter and the Declaration of Human Rights have been set aside. And we are waging a warfare through the United Nations on the children and people of Iraq with incredible results. Results that you do not expect to see in a war under the Geneva Conventions. We're targeting civilians. Worse, we're targeting children like Safa, who, of course, were not born when Iraq went into Kuwait. I mean, what is this about? It's a monstrous situation for the United Nations, for the Western world, for all of us who are part of some d democratic system. 
who are at fact responsible for the policies of our governments and the implementation of economic sanctions. Khan Ross was a senior British diplomat at the UN responsible for imposing the embargo on Iraq. You gave evidence on the impact of sanctions. Yes. And this is what you said. The weight of evidence clearly indicates that sanctions cause massive human suffering among ordinary Iraqis, in particular children. We, the US and UK governments, were the primary engineers and defenders of sanctions and were well aware of this evidence at the time. But we largely ignored it or blamed all these effects on the Saddam government. Sanctions effectively denied the entire population the means to live." Unquote. That's, that's a shocking admission. Yeah, I agree. Well, I stand by it today. I remember before I was sent to New York in late 97, I did the round of departments in London saying to them, OK, I'm going to New York, I'm going to be doing Iraq, what do I need to know? Mm. And I went to see non-proliferation department in the Foreign Office and I was expecting a briefing on the vast piles of weapons that we still thought Iraq possessed. And the desk officer sort of looked at me slightly sheepishly and said, well, actually, we don't think there's anything. We don't think there's anything in Iraq. Uh, I said, that's extraordinary. I mean, um, I, I thought we had sanctions because we thought Iraq had large amounts of weapons. He said, no, no, uh, the justification for sanctions is basically that uh, we have un unanswered questions about how those stocks were destroyed in the past. But what I feel, I mean, I feel very... Uh, I feel very guilty about it. I feel very ashamed about it. I feel ashamed about it sitting talking to you. You know, I feel actual shame running yeah. through my body when I talk to you about it. So I've heard different figures and calculations, obviously, for the number of deaths coming from sanctions. And obviously, you're never going to pin down a figure like that. It was sufficient to make Dennis Halliday resign. And I'll link to a, an article I found in Reason magazine giving a more conservative estimate, but still running into the hundreds of thousands. In one of the interviews that Robert Fisk conducted with Osama bin Laden, he states a figure of 600,000 as his belief of how many of the sanctions had killed. So maybe this brings us on to the crucial point of the interview as regards the story we're telling heading towards 9-11. Maybe, Adam, say anything else you wish to about the cliff we've seen, the sanctions, leading into how it affected the thinking of Al-Qaeda and the influence it might have had on the 9-11 attacks then. I know. The cities that were affected, southern cities of Iraq, like Basra, uh, Najaf, Kapala, and Kurdistan, these, these housed like the poor Iraq really um, people who are really dependent on the uh, government infrastructure give them clean food uh, hospital care food why not these are the these are the cities that were most affected by these sanctions that were implemented by the United States now the problem with this is that um, by uh, having these hard economic sanctions to the southern areas of Iraq is that it affected the civilian population immediately, right away. Um, because these people were so poor, uh, many of them were sick, many of them were elderly, these are parents with uh, large families. Uh, they were ill, murdered. Um, the actual number of these people who were killed uh, is really unknown. I mean, it is approximately between uh, 500,000 to 625,000 people. Most of them were children, but these are the, these are the kids who don't have now access to medical, healthcare, um, food, water, clean water, anywhere, because these infrastructures are destroyed by uh, rebels and the birds themselves. Um, also, uh, United States military and when you add in the economic sanctions as well, um, it takes a toll, and it takes a toll rather quickly. Now, um, in his interview with Robert Fisk in Afghanistan in 96, Osama bin Laden states that one of the um, underlying reasons for his vitriol of the West 
was the harsh economic sanctions afforded to Iraq. Um, and I'll quote you what Bin Laden said on the prison. When 60 Jews are killed inside Palestine in suicide bombings earlier this year, all the world gathers within seven days to criticize this action, while the deaths of 600,000 Iraqi children after UN sanctions were placed on Iraq did not receive the same reaction. Killing those Iraqi children is a crusade against Islam. We as Muslims do not like the Iraqi regime, but we think that the Iraqi people and their children are our brothers and we care about their future, end quote. Now, Bin Laden later on in other media interviews will repeat the number of Iraqi children killed in future interviews. Um, and he would, repeat, he would keep repeating the same number, 600,000. In a number of reports, the number of Iraqi children, like I said, bad. But one thing is a certain, the um, sanctions helped to cause high rates of the public to cause much suffering, which included malnutrition, uh, the complete inability to medically supervise the civilian population, as well as lack of clean water, which helped spread numerous diseases. Now, this in turn uh, helped kill hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians, most of them, like I said, you know, the elderly and the civilians. In 1997, the United Nations implemented the Oil for Food Program, which was where the Iraqi government would sell oil on the world market in exchange for food, medicine, other humanitarian needs. Um, in the uh, 1996 New York Times article, it states that scientists for the Food and Agriculture Organization uh, reported that 576,000 children were killed under the economic sanctions from the U.S. So there is some merit to Bin Laden's claims regarding the um, Iraqi children's unfortunate demise, which caused his aggression toward the United States and the military. So that's what I would say about that. So there, there is absolutely some merit to his hatred. And I think down the stretch, too, this was a, a motive, a main motivating factor. I don't think it was the main motivating factor. I think it was basically because the United States and Israel partnership was the main motivating I think this was, of course, a, a big factor for Hitler's vitriol to the United States and his incoming attacks to 9-11. Let me ask you, because of where we're going next in the series, was it also an influence on the likes of Ramzi Youssef, the perpetrator of the 1993 World Trade Center yes. bombing. Did it factor yes, there? He, yes, sorry to interrupt. Yes, he does does state this numerous times, but uh, like, like Bin Laden, his main uh, was for contemplation, uh, main aggression toward the United States was, of course, um, the uh, uh, US-Israeli uh, aggression toward the Palestinian people. Uh, but he does bring up the fact that um, during his sentencing in 1996, uh, Yusuf states before Judge Nickerson, he states that, um, that the United States are terrorists. And he brings up, the, of course, the, the sanctions against Iraq and the 500,000 or 500,000. I don't know what number he gives. He states that the, no, the hundreds of thousands of children that were killed, he states this in his, his sentencing uh, statement. But yes, I mean, this, this sanction, was a reverberation towards the guerrilla Arab guerrilla, these Mujahideen fighters, that would later have, like I said before, previously, that they would have a, um, a blowback sort to where, you know, you would see that these um, terrorist operations inside the United States and later on in Great Britain, um, it was almost a blowback. And there's a reverberation for it. I can't, it's hard for me, and I can't, I don't have any evidence for it. I have a hard time uh, believing that the United States couldn't see this as a blowback for Mujahideen fighters, for the Mujahideen to show, to, to have a aggression toward the, uh, the, um, the United States and the coalition partners. They had to have seen this coming. If they didn't, boy, you know, that's a, um, a wake-up call. But I, I, I just, I, I, can't, I can't understand how they couldn't see this, that their sanctions would have a cause for a blowback. Um, against the coalition partners themselves. So I, I, that's, what, that's what caused me a bit, that they couldn't see this coming. 
Yeah, well, the very concept of blowback is something we'll get into at some point and the different sure. ideas people have about pure blowback or the, the concept of managed blowback, that it's either an acceptable consequence of geopolitical actions that civilians in Western countries are killed every now and then, or it's actually something that aids the security state for that to happen. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, um, yeah, at some point in the very near future. Um, right next, we're off. This kind of concludes the, the aspect of the series of, of looking at this development outside of the United States. We'll be in the United States next time looking at the build-up and actioning of the World Trade Center 93 bombing. That's where we're going to head next. Is there anything else you'd like to say in today's episode? Oh, I, I think we, we said enough in this aspect. I think um, this is going to lead directly, conveniently lead directly into the pullback issue of these Mujahideen fires now looking to reach jihad inside the United States for the set of said crimes that we discussed today and for uh, the geopolitical um, bias that we have in the region, especially towards Saudi Arabia and Israel itself. And I think this will lead nicely into the, the um, physical attacks that we're going to witness with 93, with 98, and of course into 9-11. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Adam. I'll see you next time. And off we are to the World Trade Center, 1993. Thank you for having me.